Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Wednesday, May 6th. We begin with our weekly Ask the Doctor series. Infectious disease specialist Dr. Craig Janney answers COVID-19 questions as sent in by you, the listener. Next, we catch up with Mercedes Stevenson, Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. We get details on the repatriation ceremony taking place for the Canadian service members killed in a helicopter crash off the coast of Greece last week. Next, we look at the impact the coronavirus crisis has had on the grocery industry. We speak with a professor of food policy and distribution on what the future holds for supermarkets post-pandemic. And finally, it's always a wild conversation. We're joined by Dr. Axel Morenschlager, the Calgary Zoo's Director of Conservation and Science. This time out, we look at the sneaky science of studying animals. 812 now, and we bring our expert on every Wednesday to help answer all of your COVID-19 questions. Joining us once again, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary, Dr. Craig Janney. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. We haven't stumped you yet, so let's see what we can do today. Lots of questions. Uh, are you ready? Uh, sure. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Is COVID-19 a virus or a disease? We hear it called both. Yeah, uh, this is a technical question. COVID-19 is the disease. The virus itself is actually called SARS-CoV-2, which describes that it's related to the uh, SARS virus from from a number of years ago. Next question wants to compare the virus, if you can, as far as how long it can live on a surface and its spreadability to that of the measles or the flu. Can we compare uh, the different uh, strains of of, uh, viruses? in the air, the current virus does not last very long compared to something like measles. So measles can be in the air for hours and hours and hours. However, the the current virus, the one associated with COVID, does live on surfaces for quite a while. So paper up to 24 hours, but hard, shiny surfaces, metals, some plastics up to even three days. Mm. So we do have to be careful of the surfaces more than the air. Okay, um, I walked past a girl outside the 7-Eleven yesterday. I could smell the strawberry from her vaping pipe if she had it. Could I be exposed to COVID now? Potentially, yes. So there is a risk if you're within those six feet and they're breathing and they're infected, there is a risk you could be exposed. It's very low, but there is a risk. With all the outbreaks reported at distribution centers for like Purolator and Amazon, should the consumer be worried about contaminated packages, not just the exterior of the box, but the products within as well? Yeah, so again, a theoretical risk. We've not seen any cases related to this. The important thing to remember is depending on how long it takes, for example, for delivery to get to your house, things on cardboard are only there for 24 hours. So if they were packaged yesterday, delivered today, the the inside of the package is probably pretty safe. Again, remove the outer wrapping, wash your hands. And if you want, if you want to be safe, you can disinfect the interior product as well. So just disinfected wipe on the surface is all you need to get rid of any virus. Okay, uh, this one, how can the authorities say one can be asymptomatic if they're only testing those that present with COVID-19 symptoms? How do they know this? Great question. So we are testing other people. We're testing uh, multiple uh, facilities for frontline health workers. We're also now contact tracing anybody in Alberta that has had contact with an infected person. So they themselves may feel fine, and we're picking up these cases. The other ones we were screening were for other screens, such as influenza and things like that. We are picking up patients in other screens. So we we do identify these people that report no symptoms or or extremely mild symptoms, and then when we look for the, the genetics of the virus it turns out the people have the virus will they be able to open outdoor pools this summer is there enough chlorine in a pool to kill the COVID-19 virus 
another great question. So yes, the pool water itself is is probably safe. I've not seen direct testing of it, but w- the way we clean things in the lab, it should be safe. The real fear, though, is people congregating around the pool deck, change rooms, uh, the the ladders, things like that. Things people are going to touch that are not necessarily the pool water itself. So as long as the virus stays high in the community, we may not be seeing these areas open where people have to get together, for example, uh, to get into the pool. The pool itself probably safe, but not the pool deck and change rooms. Doctor, how do I safely dispose of used PPE? So making sure when you remove it, you do not touch the outer surface. So a mask, you've got to remove it by the little straps and fold it sort of inside out. Same thing with gloves, you're pulling them off, never touching the the actual outside surface of the glove. These can normally be disposed of just in a a household garbage. Um, But the big thing is to remember that the outside is essentially the, the outside world you've been trying to avoid touching. So don't pull your gloves off by the fingertips or grab the mask right in the front uh, where it's been exposed to all the air and potentially virus in the in the environment. Is there a universal database that scientists are using to share what they've tried and what appears to help or eliminate treatments? So there's not a, a universal one that incorporates all trials, but there are a number of big ones. So there is one uh, that documents all clinical trials in the U.S., Europe, and Canada. So we do share information quite readily, and we're very careful that if something is working, that's great news, but more importantly, if something's not working or has side effects, we can immediately report that so we don't repeat it in future trials. Here's one. Uh, please ask the doctor why in Alberta and in Canada we refuse to test for the population with C-19 antibodies as other countries are doing. Yeah, so this is a, a point of confusion in the media. So the, the antibodies will tell you you were exposed, but a lot of people want to see them used as a predictor. Are you protected? And we simply don't have any information yet that says an, a positive antibody test means you're protected from the virus. A couple of reasons. We don't know if all antibodies are the same, if they, if they can all protect, but the test also doesn't tell you how many antibodies you have. So you might be positive for it, but not enough protection to ward off that next round of virus if you're exposed. Okay, please ask the doctor, how does diet and underlying metabolic conditions relate to the severity of COVID? Does it? It does. So people with metabolic disorders um, tend to have worse disease, and this is largely due to the impact on the immune system. So a healthy, robust immune system means you fight off the virus fairly cleanly. Any immune defects, any slowdowns in your immune system, uh, you're going to have more severe disease. So unfortunately, diet is directly related to that, and people with metabolic conditions often have worse disease. i got a post-COVID question for you here, and very specific. If a menopausal woman has a hot flash going through a temperature check, say at an airport, would she register a high temperature? Uh, I'm not positive exactly where the thresholds are set on this. I do know that we do, with the temperature, we do pick up some false positives, so people with other conditions, including other illnesses. But more importantly, we get a lot of false negatives, so people that have the virus do not have a high enough fever to be picked up at the airport. So it's one reason why Canada really has not relied on temperature screens Mm -hmm. at the airport is that they're just not reliable enough. Question, uh, does our immune system get weaker in self-isolation? And particularly, another person asking a related question, we're using all these antibacterial things and bleach and that. Is that weakening our immune system? 
So the short answer is no. Even though we're in self-isolation, we're still exposed to everything in the outside world. We're still eating food. We still come in contact with bacteria in our own homes, in our yards. If we're self-isolating with family, there's other human contact there. So generally, no, our immune system doesn't drop. Cleaning products, same thing, typically not going to hurt our immune system, provided we're not using a lot of direct antimicrobials. Those are not the best things. They do tend to breed resistance in the community, so something that's more of a chemical cleaner is great. And if I could take the one uh, chance here, we have seen nationwide a drop in childhood vaccination. So people are afraid to bring their kids to the clinic. It's perfectly safe to do that. And we really want to avoid mm-hmm. avoid uh, missing vaccinations and then having a spike, for example, in measles later in kids. So we got to make sure we do keep our immune systems going. I keep hearing over and over again, masks only prevent you from spreading disease. If everyone wore a mask, wouldn't it be logical we would be protecting each other? That's the reason for the recommendation. That's exactly the reason. So unfortunately, there's there's low evidence that they protect uninfected people. But if every single person who had the virus had a mask on, we would see a rapid drop in uh, the virus in the community. So yes, you're wearing a mask to protect your family and to protect your neighbors. Is the mask effective if you have a beard? Proper masks that are designed to fight viruses, so these N95, they have to be actually fit to your skin and tested for leaks. So in those cases, beards really mess them up. However, if you're simply wearing a fabric mask to knock down the amount of droplets you're spreading, typically facial hair has less of an impact on that. Wow, I think we got through about 150 <laughs> questions there. And if, Good job, doctor. If we didn't get to your question, we'll put it in the bank for next week and hopefully, uh, hope you can join us again next week. Uh, I will try, so have a great week, guys. <laughs> you too, doctor. That is Craig Jenny, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. 719 now. The Prime Minister headed today to Trenton, Ontario for the repatriation of those lost in the Cyclone helicopter crash. To get more details, we're joined this morning by Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Mercedes Stevenson. Hi, Mercedes. Hey, guys. It's going to be a sad day in Ontario. I know the the provincial government has asked that people stay home and not align the the highway of heroes today, but the, the prime minister will be in Trenton. What's expected to happen today? So this is the repatriation ceremony for those who died in the cyclone crash and, and tragically not all of their remains could be recovered. Only the remains of... Um, Sub-Lieutenant Cowan and um, Cohen, pardon me, and uh, one of the other crew members who has not yet been identified were able to be recovered. Uh, but regardless, they will be coming back to Canada and they will be honouring all those who died. The Prime Minister will be there. Uh, this will be a ceremony that looks familiar in some ways to Canadians because it's the same place that the casualties from Afghanistan were brought back to. Um, and what will be different now is that it's COVID-19. So the military really had to try to find a way for how do we honor these people and yet at the same time deal with the fact that there is a pandemic and they decided they still very much wanted to have this parade to honor them but they're going to do it with people socially distanced Uh, and by parade I don't mean they're necessarily going to be marching around on a long parade it's a ceremonial gesture to honor the dead so you will see people in uniform standing there they'll be two meters apart and they are believed to be uh, equipped with masks uh, to try to maximize that but obviously a very sad and difficult day for the families that not only are you dealing with a scenario where you're not able to have the the normal ceremony for your loved ones there they can't have funerals like they might normally have they can't have the community around them Um, and it's very tough on the military because 
looks big, but I can tell you it's very small. And a lot of people know each other. And everyone I've talked to knew someone who at least knew someone who was on this aircraft. So we're talking about maybe one, two degrees of separation. Losing this many people at once is, is tremendously painful for that institution. Mercedes, obviously the Prime Minister in attendance there this afternoon, as you mentioned. Uh, although uh, business basically as, u- as usual as it can be this time, as the uh, government's expected to face a grilling. Uh, the once-a-week sitting in person of the House, uh, what can we expect? Still some fireworks, even with the Prime Minister not in attendance? I, I suspect you're still going to see pressure from the opposition, particularly on the COVID-19 crisis, where the money is being spent, uh, whether there is more money coming down the pipe for some of the big industries like big oil and airlines, both of which are super capital-intensive industries. So they've been struggling because the wage subsidy helps to pay for the wages of folks who are working for them, but it's not covering what in those industries is their biggest cost, and that's running their equipment every day. Uh, And in particular with the airlines, that equipment has to fly constantly in order to make money. Fireworks in Ottawa, no doubt today we'll be watching for that. Thanks for joining us, Mercedes. Thank you. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News, Ottawa Bureau Chief. 641 now, and it looks and seems like panic buying has come to an end. But according to a new study, the COVID-19 pandemic will change the way we grocery shop forever. To get details on what that looks like, we're joined this morning by Professor of Food Policy and Distribution at Dalhousie University, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. Good morning, Sylvain. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. What exactly do you mean this is going to change the way we grocery shop? Well, I think it has changed the way we grocery shop. Forever, now, though, will it be that way? You really think so? Well, um, we, we, we see a very fearful consumer out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, fear is a very powerful sentiment. And we're talking about a second wave, perhaps a third wave. Uh, this is going to last a while. And so we are expecting measures that you now see uh, when visiting a grocery store to remain for for quite some time, unfortunately. And, and grocers will be very careful. They want to make sure that uh, people feel safe. Some retailers are asking uh, people to wear a mask now. Uh, it's mandatory for some retailers. Uh, others are actually taking a temperature of consumers as they walk into the grocery store. So there are different things happening right now that uh, you, wouldn't, you, 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 didn't, you just didn't see a few months ago. And, uh, and I suspect that these measures will last a while. E-commerce is another one. Um, the number of Canadians buying online has almost quadrupled in the last two months. Quadrupled. Wow. It's, it's, and I don't think that that's going to uh, change. I suspect that number may drop a little bit, but more and more people will actually find it convenient to get the food delivered to their homes because they just don't want to go to the grocery store. How about the grocers uh, themselves, Savan? Because we, we did see, you know, a very busy uh, beginning of the pandemic. And, of course, grocery stores, a lot of, a lot of the companies hiring employees. Is that going to continue or uh, is it going to slow down? Are they going to have a, an issue uh, financially when it comes down the line further? Well, it's a good question. So they, they got the volume for free. I mean, they basically got... Uh, all of the volume that typically restaurants would get, they got overnight. Uh, but of course, to run a grocery store now is likely five to seven percent more expensive. And with margins of barely one to two percent, something's got to give. 
And so, so we are expecting some, some changes down the road when it comes to the network of grocery stores. For example, I wouldn't be surprised to see some stores close. Or we could see some stores be converted into pick stores to support e-commerce. And uh, most importantly, I actually would see stores carrying fewer SKUs, so fewer products. Mm. The average grocery store in Canada would carry anywhere between 18 to 20,000 different food products. That could actually drop significantly post-COVID. Do you think we'll forever or for a long time to come see the lineup situation where only so many people are allowed in? Or, or will it just be that we don't line up anymore because it'll go strictly to picking up your orders? Uh, well, lineups are everywhere right now. I mean, uh, it's very rare that you you won't face a, a lineup and a security guard. And uh, I mean, basically, the 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 grocery store will discipline you through the process of grocery shopping, which is uh, which can actually make some people uncomfortable. And uh, I don't think that's going to last because, of course, grocers want us to feel comfortable and feel well at home when Mm -hmm. we're grocery shopping but i actually do believe that for several months uh the things that you see now will remain will last until say december or january i'm not sure it really depends how fast things go in terms of uh, the number of cases how public health officials are directing policy and things like that And, and so the grocery stores and restaurants are at the mercy of, of, of what public health officials are, are actually saying. I want to go back to your comment about uh, you know, fewer SKUs or perhaps a limiting selection somewhat when it comes to maybe the future of grocery stores. Would, would you uh, think those would be impulse or fringe items? Because I know I'm spending less time at the grocery store and I might be uh, not uh, you know, spending the amount of time to find a new product or something that's off the beaten path. Would they have more staples or more proven items? Oh, oh, probably. The irony of, of, of what's happening is that even though food prices are actually going up, it's more, food is actually becoming more expensive. You're actually saving money because you're not buying on yeah. impulse as much. <laughs> and you're cooking way more. So the products you're buying now aren't the same as what you were buying just a couple of months ago. And, of course, you're wasting less because you're more aware of what's actually in your fridge and you're in your cupboard before you show up at the grocery store. You're not buying things you don't need. Mm-hmm. So there's lots. And leftovers, you're more creative with them. You actually eat them. So you're, we're all saving money right now for sure. It's true. Uh, you know, shopping, I agree with what Andy was saying. I used to go to the grocery store. It was my kind of my, my time to get away and just relax and wander slowly and do my shopping and pick up some. And we're not doing that anymore. So I think you're right. It has changed things dramatically for how long? We shall wait and see. Thank you, as always, for joining us, Sylvain. My pleasure. That's Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Professor of Food Policy and Distribution at Dalhousie University. I used to bring home those crazy items, and my wife yeah. would say, what's this for? And I said, I, I like I the know. packaging. <laughs> Want to try Let's it. Let's give it a try. Now when I get in, it's head down, find those items on the list, yep. and get out of Dodge. Follow the lines and the arrows on the floor and move it. Might surprise you, Sue, but I'm not Mr. Excitement, and I used to enjoy a trip to the grocery store. <laughs> Seven, uh, well, coming up to 710 on the morning news, uh, no surprise that we're uh, stressed out right now, Sue. And there's a new uh, study that's been released, a new study that's been a long time in the making. From 2008 to 2019, researchers at the U of, Z, uh, U of C examined the stress levels of, get this, Sue, 48,000 clients 
at the Calgary Counseling Center uh, during their first visit to see a therapist. So right. This was early on, and according to their findings, uh, distress levels have increased as employment numbers uh, dwindled over the past decade. Now, researchers are saying uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, with increased people being furloughed, if not their jobs being shuttered for good, could increase the stress of Calgarians. So, not surprising, really, Not surprising is on that point. Well, you think in current terms, but yeah, over the past decade, and it just goes to show, and this is a, a real study with 48,000 participants, that we were in it tight to begin with. Okay, let us go on as we uh, try to release some of that stress. Let's talk about animals. That always makes us feel better, right? The Calgary Zoo, it might be closed for now, but behind the scenes, it's business as usual. So this morning, as we like to do each month, we check in with the Calgary Zoo's Director of Conservation and Science, Dr. Axel Morenschlager. Hi, Axel. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. We are fascinated by the tease you sent us about what you're going to be discussing today. Sneaky science, hoots and ribbits. Boy, where, <laughs> where do you even start? I don't know which one to go with first. Uh, <laughs> it all kind of interweaves, you know. Uh, sneaky science is something that we're doing, especially right now, especially at times when uh, you can't just be running around everywhere. So we have this amazing researcher team, of course, that is using like some really funky technology to help species that really need our help. And so we have ways of spying on our animals even from afar, Fun. even during this breeding season, you know, by watching or listening using some really cool technology. And, uh, yeah, so I was going to ask you something about uh, the distance. Is this a distance thing are we talking about here because you can't get close to certain species? Yeah, in some cases it's, it's because you can't get so close. In some places it's because they're in places that are so wild that they're hard to access. And... Uh, and sometimes it's also because the animals actually spread over such big distances, mm-hmm. such as with our migratory birds, that you can't possibly be running after them. Where's the so sneakiest you, camera spot you have? Oh, sneakiest camera spot. I don't know if I can reveal this information, <laughs> but <laughs> don't look around your studio too much. <laughs> but um, uh, no, it's pretty, um, you know, we have some sneaky spots actually in, in Africa. In East Africa, we have uh, places. Uh, where we monitor some very endangered um, antelope in regions where um, those antelope could be under threat, for instance, from uh, from local poachers and such. So we make sure that we can monitor those very carefully. But it's, it's uh, all kinds of different uh, cool devices that we use, uh, especially using satellites as well. So one of the really neat things that's happening right now is that actually we're uh, trying to find hooping cranes, the big white North American cranes from space. And the way that we do that is actually is that one can zoom in on images from the sky of trying to find this white animal in a green and brown landscape. And so our team, headed by Hannah Edwards and Danica Stark, are actually uh, processing with really sophisticated computers ways of finding cranes. And then they beam that information in real time here in May Mm. to the government so that they can go and search by helicopters to see if these new places have endangered hooping cranes so that we can help those populations. So it's super funky and super uh, just incredibly novel. Just imagine trying to find a crane from space (laughs) and then being able to help it. So that's a really cool one, right? Needle in a haystack for sure, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And then uh, another thing that that involves technology but involves other familiar things is that our teams are actually working with animals to get them into the wild in a way that involves some self-isolation. You know, sometimes you have to do these things. It's good for you. It's good for others before they just go wild. <clears throat> and uh, and one of the great things that just happened just last week involves satellites. 
and little tiny burrowing owls. These are the little burrowing owls that are uh, unique to North America, the only owl that lives in the ground, and that has the amazing ability to make the sound of a rattlesnake with its beak. And so uh, what we've been doing is basically we rescue little tiny owls that are almost sure to die, bring them to the research center and the conservation center at the zoo, where our animal care and vet staff look after them, right? So now we've had 20 owls on Thursday and Friday go into the wild as, as 10 pair. And there, they're uh, living in little houses on the prairie. We call them <laughs> soft-release pens, where they're kind of stuck together for a little while. And uh, the marvelous thing about them being stuck together is they're almost guaranteed to have little ones. I don't, want to, I don't want to rush you along, but we only have like two minutes, so I'm yeah. not sure if we want to get to the rivets. The rivets. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, in terms of the rivets, what's really cool is we don't use satellites for them. What we do is we actually put song meters kind of into the wild, into their wild bedrooms. <laughs> so under, under the lead of, of Leah Randall, what we do is we actually put these uh, song meters out in British Columbia where they uh, listen in on the males that are calling so that we can see where they're breeding. And what's really remarkable is that um, together with the BC recovery team, what's just happened yesterday is that they first had found more egg masses than in the past. Then we're able to translocate more uh, egg masses to areas that need these populations. And those will be looked after in tiny little exclosures to have up to 10,000 tadpoles being released. Uh, again, they're being looked after with some curbside deliveries of food and stuff like that mm -hmm. when they get bigger. And then they set off into the wild, into freedom, to help endangered northern leopard frog populations once again. The conservation work you and your team do, are, it's just out of this world fantastic. Before we let you go, though, I wanted to ask you, because I understand you might have a little tease about some cute new residents of the Calgary Zoo that you might be able to share with us this morning. True? Yes, well, that's true. Um, as, as you know, we we try to be there for all our wildlife, and, and we're a conservation organization, and we care for every individual and, and for all species. And one of the things that's happened, we're getting some more information about this, Bill, is that um, that we've just gotten three little grizzly cubs, which are orphans, Aww. and they're, they're really small. They're like three, four months old, and they're tiny, and and their mother was killed, and, and I can't say too much about that because we don't even have as much information, but we'll, what we are happy to say is that the Alberta government reached out to us uh, for help, and we were happy to accommodate. So we're actually caring for these three little grizzly bears, which otherwise would be dead, and uh, and raising them, and they're, they're doing very well. So we'll look into the next steps, but for now we're really pleased to have been able to basically save these little guys, and we're going to do everything in our power to make sure that they're well taken care of and that we can you know make the best future for them love it at yeah. this time of their tragic loss of their mother good stuff thank you for the scoop we appreciate it and all the work you do thank you dr axel thank you have a great day that is dr axel Mornschlager, the calgary zoo's director of conservation and science alberta one call is a private and not-for-profit corporation that provides a communication service between people who intend to disturb the ground and the utility operators who read uh, register their buried facilities with more people being home, there's been an increase of people gardening and doing home renos without making this important call. This means there have been an increase in line hits. We're joined by the president of Alberta One Call, Mike Sullivan. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. How are you? Good. An essential service that you folks do, a tip of the hat for doing what you do. 
Uh, but could it be the case that some people don't even know you exist and, and don't even consider the dangers before, uh, uh, you know, digging down for that fence post? Well, I guess it's always possible people don't know we exist in Alberta. It's probably not the case, given the reliance on our buried utilities mm-hmm. to, for our economy. Uh, but we have been hearing from homeowners that they're wary of strangers coming onto their property during the pandemic. Mm. And we've also received some comments questioning whether or not Alberta One Call is even open at this time. And I'm here to tell you that, yes, we are open. We are functioning. We are receiving locate requests. We're processing those and we're notifying our members of anybody intending to disturb the ground. And does your team, do they do they show up at the door or do they just go out and do the marks and stay away from people and, you know, following all the, the social distancing guidelines? Well, the locating and marking process certainly requires technicians to enter property to identify and mark buried utilities, but they are taking precautions. We're, take, we're asking uh, people to, you know, maintain physical distancing and have that two-meter buffer. And uh, the technicians won't be knocking on doors or ringing doorbells. They're going to maintain that physical distancing. So precautions are being taken. And how long does it take, Mike? Because some people might say, I want to get this done by the weekend. How long uh, before uh, getting somebody out uh, after I've made the call? Well, we want to definitely have 72 hours, three working days notice at the bare minimum. Mm -hmm. At this time of year, as you you mentioned earlier, people are staying home. This is when we see an influx of digging activity anyway. But this time, we're seeing a lot more of it just because of the pandemic, people staying home, and they're looking around their property thinking, now it's time to replace that deck, replace that fence, Mm -hmm. whatever it might be. So there's definitely um, a backlog of uh, locate requests and uh, identification of of those buried utilities. Mike, how, how deep are the utilities? Well, they can be shallow. I mean, they can be uh, very shallow because of just time, people doing landscaping and erosion over time. But uh, generally, for somebody's home, you know, you want to say that they're, they're more than a foot below ground. But again, I look out my backyard. I can't see through the ground. I need to know it's below. I need to have that located. And what about people who say, okay, you know, I'm the original owner. I know where everything is. Uh, might not be the case because uh, things, uh, you know, could have been there before construction of your home underground already. That's right. And you know, so many people aren't aware that maybe they are uh, on their land, that they have a, a, uh, other utilities. As you said, there's a, there could be a, a right-of-way or an easement that their land is, uh, encompasses, which includes other buried utilities that don't service their property, but they are on their property and they have that right-of-way. So it's, uh, you know, so important to always, always, always click before you dig uh, and get that locate done before any digging activity. And we are operating, we are open, and we are seeing a lot of activity. But I just want to make sure that people are reminded to do that, to always click before they dig. Now, there's a, unfortunately, there's about 45 damages per day across Canada. And there are societal costs associated with that, not just the cost of repair, but there's emergency response, loss of service, evacuation, etc. And that costs Albertans $350 million a year. And, and taxpayers are on the hook for that. And the, the majority of those damages is because a person didn't request to locate before they started digging. Thank you for sharing the information, Mike. Appreciate it.
Thank you very much. Bye-bye. That's Mike Sullivan. The email or the website, I should say, by the way, albertaonecall.com. That's where you can check in, have somebody to come out and uh, mark off anything that you might be doing in your yard to make sure you don't uh, break one of those lines. Mike is president of Alberta One Call Corporation.